you're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast, where the forecast here is always compelling as we discuss real-life challenges, successes, and stories from the journey to Hybrid Cloud with your host, Andre Tost. Hi, welcome everyone, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Today's guest is Donna Dillenberger. Donna is an IBM fellow and also the CTO of the Hybrid Cloud Systems Research. So we'll talk a lot more about that. Thanks for coming today, Donna. Thank you, Andre. And as always, we'll start with uh, introductions. So maybe if you could tell us a bit about your professional history, kind of where you got to where you are today, and maybe describe what you're doing today a little bit. Uh, yes. I was a math major in college, and IBM recruited me when I was a junior. And they told me that if I joined IBM, uh, IBM would pay for my uh, graduate school tuition and books and also pay me a salary. So that really incentivized me to join IBM. So I did that. And uh, I then went to a graduate school at Columbia University. I got a degree in computer science. When I finished, one of my courses was with the department chair of Columbia, and it was uh, on computer networking. And when I finished that course, he asked me when I graduated, would I like to come back and teach at Columbia? So I did that. I was a, an adjunct professor, and I asked the department chair what he wanted me to teach. And uh, he said I could design my own course. So I taught advanced computer design. When I was in graduate school, I found that you have core courses, compilers, security, architecture, but there was no course to tie them all together. So I taught the course so that they would know what the trade-offs, for example, designing availability into the hardware, you don't have to have the software, the applications provide their own availability, putting it security as low in the system as possible, you know, the hardware, the firmware, the operating system, the drivers, you wouldn't have to have the application do it all themselves. But, but there are trade-offs because if you do it in the lower layers, then it's more expensive. So throughout the course, we compared how to design supercomputers to large servers, to laptops, to cell phones. And they saw in each form factor where certain capability didn't exist and was left up to the software. So I did the same work at IBM. I started working on hardware, future hardware design. Then I worked on hypervisors. I worked on clusters and worked on operating systems. Then I worked on middleware, databases, compilers, networking, every course that I took at Columbia, I also did at the same time work in that particular component at IBM. So they uh, reinforced each other. That made me understand the theory from graduate school, but also understand the practicalities from actually designing and coding that component for IBM systems. When I became an IBM fellow, I had to travel more for work. And so I couldn't teach one course a semester anymore. So I stopped being an adjunct professor at Columbia. I really enjoyed it, though. I, I enjoyed both. And so now as a fellow, what do you do? Actually, the same thing I've always been doing. I design new features <laughs> for IBM systems, you know, new features either in the security component or availability or the hardware or the operating system, depending on where it makes the most sense and where it would differentiate our offerings, cloud systems, services from our competitors. It's really fun. All right, cool. Maybe before we dig a little deeper into that, maybe you can give us your definition of hybrid cloud. We're moving on to the hybrid cloud topic, and that's obviously in your job title. So if you were to give us the elevator version of the term hybrid cloud, what would that be? Okay. Well, first of all, the definition of cloud in computer science terms, 
is the capability of enabling users to access compute and software resources as quickly and as easily as possible. You go to a dashboard and you can ask for a database and you don't have to worry about the hardware that's required for that. So cloud lets users access software and compute resources at the touch of a button. A user can ask for AI models, or they can ask for digital assets as a service, or databases, or web services, and they don't have to worry about the hardware and how the software is installed. Well, they can ask for uh, virtual machines and containers and install the software themselves. They can even go lower than that. They can ask for a logical partition or the entire machine if they want to. They could ask for explicit storage and networking options. So a cloud hides the resources a user wants and allows a user to just ask for the type of service they want without worrying about how it's deployed and how much resources it requires. There are different types of clouds. There's clouds that you could run the security and privacy in your own data center. We call that a private cloud, but it still has that overall dashboard effect of letting its users within, for example, a particular company just click and ask for a container or a virtual machine or a particular type of hardware or software. And behind that dashboard is all these scripts and automation software that provisions and installs and sets it up for the customer. That for a private cloud, a public cloud allows users to ask for those types of requests for companies that provide that to the public, companies like Amazon and Azure and IBM. So there are these public clouds and these private clouds. Businesses use both. Businesses use public clouds because sometimes Amazon has certain services that aren't available in the other public clouds. So a company or a business would run some of their workloads on these public clouds, but many, at least 80% of customers, they still have their own data centers and they also want to run their workloads in their own data centers for privacy concerns. But these workloads between public and private clouds, they need to also be managed and they also have to have common security and interoperability. And so hybrid cloud is the capability to be able to manage your workloads, whether it's in a private cloud or public cloud, using the same methods, one dashboard, and providing the interoperability and optimizations between public and private cloud. Okay, yeah. And obviously, on previous episodes in the podcast, we've had similar discussions about what makes a hybrid cloud hybrid. And there's this notion also of connectivity. So one is location. That means I can take things and they become somewhat portable and I can run them in different kinds of places or I use, you know, fit for purpose services in different places. But I think where the challenge begins is where we need to connect them all together and integrate them, right? Yeah, they're definitely connected just using standard network protocols, but connecting up a layer connect them with respect to security, you know, what type of credentials you use that could authenticate you across different clouds where you don't have to have a user authenticating themselves to a public cloud, to several public clouds, and then the private cloud and back again every time the application calls each. So they need it to be connected with respect to security so that uh, the security credentials or authentication and access control mechanisms are interoperable across uh, the different clouds. Beyond security, there's, as I said, the management part so that you could 
monitor both types of clouds in a compatible way so you know where most of the resources are besides performance and security. There's also the availability aspect. When a workload spans public and private clouds, you have to know which part is failing, which part is inundated and needs more resources. So you could quickly spin up more resources or recover or have the component that failed fail over to the available part of the public or private cloud. So interoperability and connectivity spans not just the network, but security, availability, performance, and management. Another aspect I think that comes out in cloud computing a lot is certain style of creating applications that what we call cloud native to say, if we're designing applications now, we're doing it in a cloud native way. And that means that they can easily adopt to this style of computing that you just described with cloud and across clouds. The problem though, is that many, many, many applications haven't been built that way, yet there is still this desire to bring them to the cloud. Is that something that you've come across as in, what do I do with an existing application that was built in a fairly monolithic fashion, for example, and yet still I want to add some cloud computing characteristics to it? Yeah, that is a trend that has been going on for decades in the sense that every few years there's a new type of DevOps paradigm. So back in the 60s, you wrote applications with the green screens and with line editors. When Unix came out, you wrote applications using BI or uh, Emacs. And when uh, the internet became more public, you developed applications using integrated development environments, IDEs that had graphical user interfaces and were preloaded with libraries. And then uh, this idea of cloud natives, it's the term we give to the DevOps these days, which is a way to build applications, not from the ground up, but really to use resources that are out there, for example, cloud APIs, cloud services, so that you don't have to write your own database, you don't have to write your own messaging system, but you call these APIs of libraries that are out there, cloud native being that you could find these APIs, you, you know, they're REST services, whereas before you might have had to install the software, you don't have to worry about that because whichever cloud you're going to run on, private cloud or public cloud, those libraries would have been installed for you. So you're more API driven in your application development. It's not so much as like writing code from scratch, but it's like uh, connecting APIs and flowing data from these different cloud services. And then the rest of what they call <laughs> cloud native DevOps, it's really the tools that you use now, which is, you know, besides the discoverability of cloud services that are available, also being able to share your code in the sense that you're most likely not the only one working on your code. You're working with a, a group of people that are probably global, and you're probably working with a group of people that aren't all in your company in the sense that you're using open source code that wasn't developed by your company. And so you need a public repository to be able to collaborate on coding, whereas the trend of coding it started with there was just one person coding and that person did all their code. Now, as I said, it's more like connecting REST APIs, knowing which open source to use. And so you need to have a DevOps that's based on public repositories like GitHub. You need to allow for your collaborators to build and provide their incremental updates without breaking your updates. So, you know, it has to be tied into an incremental build public service like Jenkins. And then when that's done, 
You have to be able to deploy it in the different clouds, public or private environments that you want to. So that type of DevOps is what is the trend now. Would you agree with that ultimately what it leads to is that applications are merely assemblies of existing cloud services that we put a UI on top of? Is that what an application will be? I do. That's a great description, Andre. Not only that you put a UI on top of, because you put a UI on top of it if it's laptop-centric. You put a mobile interface on top of it if that same application, which also works for your laptop, you also want to make mobile-enabled because maybe it's not convenient for them to have an interface that is graphical on their mobile device. It should be more uh, voice-oriented because their mobile device could be a watch. And it's more convenient to talk to your watch or besides graphical interfaces for your desktop and mobile interfaces for your mobile device. It could also be the interface is a sensor in the sense that uh, you don't speak to it, you don't type into it, but the input into it is your heart rate or the amount of oxygen detected from blood levels that are extremely close to your skin. So the input isn't something you consciously put into the application, but which is sensed from the environment. So those are the three types of interfaces that you would put on top of these applications, as you said, that are collections of open source, cloud services, and also personally developed code if you can't find that existing function that you could reuse somewhere. And doesn't that also then imply that at least over time, those lower levels of resources that I have available in clouds today, and you mentioned some of these examples, like a virtual machine, for example, or a storage volume, that those will become less important, right? Because I don't need to worry about virtual machines anymore if I will just invoke cloud services that are implemented and hosted and deployed in whatever way. I don't care. I don't see that. That's transparent to me. Just to throw another buzzword in there is that my code will then live in some kind of serverless runtime environment where, again, I've now decoupled myself from the underlying infrastructure entirely and I don't need to worry about it anymore. Yeah, actually, you've described it perfectly in the sense that once you don't need to worry about something anymore, it's actually more important, the infrastructure, <laughs> because once it's not the application developer's job to worry about how many containers their code requires, what is the size of virtual machine, you know, how much storage is required for the data coming in from their mobile device, those layers actually become more important because those layers now need to automatically sense this data coming in from this mobile device. So far, it's only 20 megabytes per hour in the morning, but then in the afternoon, it hits gigabytes per hour. The infrastructure then has to sense that and be able to add more volumes to that mobile application. And then, for example, a desktop application, it's being used to trade stocks or do financial payments. During our pandemic, online banking, online trades, it increased about 25x. <laughs> and so if there was no infrastructure, all of that would have failed. And what we had to do was make infrastructure even smarter in the sense that it sensed the huge demand of spikes and increase the number of virtual machines, made them larger, spread them out across the world to where the payments were occurring. There is no such thing as serverless computing. That is a term for application developers, so they don't have to worry about the scalability and the size that their applications require for storage, network, and compute resources. 
But serverless computing is just from an application developer's point of view, you know, wherever that application is called, and that application may be composed of several different cloud resources, public and private, that serverless definitely becomes full of servers (laughs) that are more intelligent, that could place the server compute and network resources where the demand is. So cloud actually drives more demand on infrastructure. Yeah, and I keep saying the same thing. Serverless is really a terrible name because it doesn't mean that there are no servers, <laughs> right? In fact, you know, at least in the beginning, there's probably going to be more servers, right? Oh, that's definite because, you know, how you started the question, for example, DevOps, the trend at the beginning was an application programmer wrote every single line of code herself. She knew all the resources she was using. And she coded it to be as efficient as possible. She knew how much memory was required, how much CPU and threads were required. When you start using other people's code, you start using open source and cloud APIs. Even if you use a language that tries to hide all that, for example, Java tries to hide the number of threads that make your workloads the most efficient. You have no idea the number of CPU, memory, network resources that you're using in the serverless paradigm. And that actually increases infrastructure demands 20, 25% to 10x because all these libraries and cloud APIs that are calling each other, before you were able to optimize that as the application developer, you knew, oh, okay, I don't need to get more memory now. I could just pass these parameters to the next call. But every time you go from library to library, you go from cloud service to cloud service, you're copying the data over and over again. Even if you don't know it, that's how these cloud services work. They don't pass parameters to each other. They copy the data. And so your memory usage is huge just because the application developer is uh, 10 steps away from knowing what their calls mean. It's almost like you're eating things that you grew yourself in the ground. You knew how much it took to grow this meal on your table as opposed to ordering it from a restaurant. You don't know, okay, is that cucumber from a local farm or did they have to ship it from New Zealand? It hides the ability to optimize, actually. And ultimately, you know, I keep thinking what it comes down to is that we could say, well, now the application developer can focus on writing application logic and doesn't have to focus on the surrounding aspects and infrastructure and things like that anymore. Even though at the same time, I feel like we've been stating that desire for 20 years or even longer, right? I remember in my early days as a software developer, it was, oh, we have a new generation of tools that will finally allow us to focus just on application logic. And here we are, and I feel still like we haven't quite achieved that, but we're getting closer, so that, that's, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I think we're closer to that than at any point in computer science. I mean, there are many application developers that just write their code using open source and connecting to cloud APIs. And as you said, they don't have to worry about how many containers, storage, memory, CPUs, threads it takes. That is really being done by the cloud. That is the beauty of the cloud, private and public, this automation and detection of the resources required. Of course, you know, these cloud APIs, the application developers are taking advantage of the libraries behind them, the middleware developers that provide these services. They get closer and they have to design them in such a way, how many containers should I have? Should all this run in one virtual machine or multiple virtual machines? And so ultimately, when these libraries are installed by a cloud, public or private, that at the installation time, 
the architect has to now worry, okay, when this AI service is called, how much memory and physical threads and CPU services and type of machine should we install this AI model on, knowing that the parameters of it is going to potentially grow to terabytes or 10,000 transactions per second to 50,000. So the architect has to take that into account at installation time, you know, work with the cloud infrastructure to make sure that that type of resource demand is elastic. Even though I still regularly read reports for, say, there's a, there's a big sports event and they're opening it up for ticket sales. And then they say, well, five minutes later, the ticket online system broke down because <laughs> there were too many people coming at it. And I'm thinking, seriously? I mean, this is predictable, right? I feel like it's becoming increasingly unacceptable to not have that extreme elasticity, right? It's just what I expect as a consumer. Right. You know, in the U.S., during the pandemic, our U.S. government provided over a trillion dollars in stimulus funding. And all the payments from our two stimulus programs, they were hosted on an IBM Z system, one of the most elastic Linux servers in the industry. And all the stimulus payments, they went out without a hitch. It was trillions, trillions of dollars because the Linux server on the Z system, they don't have to worry about how much memory, CPU and resources. As I said, there's something in the Z system called a workload manager. It's an AI that detects the demands of an application and provides it with more network, CPU, memory, and prioritizes its storage demands uh, so that it is elastic. But as all of us in the U.S. experienced you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, when vaccines were available, <laughs> you couldn't get a vaccination appointment, right? You had to keep on trying, and maybe it was a week before you actually got a vaccination appointment. And that application that was not done by IBM, it just wasn't scalable. So we go back to that initial question before, does infrastructure matter? And your example about a sports event, we never hear about problems of banks and consumers not being able to get their stimulus payment because the system didn't crash. It was one Z system and it didn't crash at all. But we all know about the vaccination problems in the U.S. at the beginning to get an appointment because the infrastructure was not well designed. The sporting events that crashes, that was not well designed. So those are three examples where cloud infrastructure matters even more. Yeah, I can give you another example where my son was trying to get his student season tickets for the college <laughs> football team. And it meant that you had to get up at four in the morning and open up 15 browser tabs, you know, oh. and, and hope you get through. And then a couple hours later, with a bit of luck, you have your ticket, right? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Most U.S. people use some type of software to file their taxes electronically. And the U.S. federal tax system, that also runs on IBM Z systems. During the April 15th or 16th deadline, when everyone tries to file it electronically, you know, again, because the Z system is very elastic. So it's interesting in the sense that the more the term serverless computing is floated about, I bet we'll have more crashes because that means no one feels responsible for designing an infrastructure for the cloud application. I hope that's not true, but architects and systems designers that could create systems that could scale within seconds because it only takes single digit seconds for a system to crash under hundreds of thousands of requests under unyielding growing demand that we're just going to need more of that in the future. 
that's an interesting point, actually, that you, I mean, using the mainframe as an example, as a system that was obviously designed way before cloud existed, but yet it already exhibits some of the cloud computing characteristics that we're looking for, namely resilience and scalability and elasticity, for example. Within a single digit second. Yeah. You know, I, I would say before the term cloud came about, the Z system was computer science's first cloud. Clouds came about because of necessity, because of user demand. The first uses for computers was computation, right? To be able to calculate things that would take too long by hand. You know, things like the calculations that are needed to launch a rocket into space, which is what one of the first Z systems was built for. Calculations for the first U.S. social security system, which is what mainframes were built for. To handle that volume, the entire population for social security, computer science capabilities needed to be invented and designed, right? The first virtual machines were created on mainframes because before that, computers just used to be single user, single use. You couldn't run multi-tenancy in them, which is a requirement of cloud. It's a requirement to be able to handle more than one request, more than one program. And so the Z system started that as its design in the 60s. And then during the 80s, the internet came. And of course, we had mini computers that it's still mini computers were bought by companies. They weren't in personal homes. But then when the laptops came in the late 80s, then the access to compute services grew exponentially. Now, for example, in the US, you had a population of 340 million and at least 200 million were adults or something, and they do multiple requests a day. And so laptops weren't designed for multi-tenant use. Usually there's only one person running on a laptop and the same for desktops. And that's where our commodity servers came from. Commodity servers came from the design of a desktop single use And so clouds that are just made up of desktop servers or commodity servers, they need to reinvent again how to scale, whereas the servers that were designed not for single use for the social security, for the launch of rockets into space, for Medicare, they were designed with multi-tenancy elasticity in, in mind. Okay, we're slowly but steadily running out of time here, but I don't want to let you go without asking a couple more questions. One being, I want to tie it back to where you work, namely in IBM Research. I was wondering, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a researcher in the context of cloud computing and hybrid clouds where things are rapidly evolving? How do you stay ahead of the curve, so to speak? And then second follow-up question would be, can you give an example of something really cool that you're working on right now that gets you excited? Yeah, I think at IBM, we're all researchers in the sense that what a researcher does is that they work on a problem that doesn't have a solution. And there are more problems that we have in computer science, especially in the area of hybrid cloud. We talked about them here in the sense of why infrastructure is even more important in hybrid cloud. How do you design a hybrid cloud to have that elasticity of compute on demand and make it available and have security? So as a researcher, I design things into hardware, into the firmware, the hypervisors, the containers, the runtimes, the DevOps libraries to provide those capabilities into IBM's hybrid cloud. The second question you have is what am I working on now that really excites me? So we are having this problem with AI right now, 
where when people think of AI, they mostly focus on the data science part. Oh, you know, how do I create this AI model to, um, you know, differentiate cats from dogs or something like that. But most AI projects never go into production because, again, it's divorced from infrastructure. When you deploy an AI model, if you deploy it too far from the data that you need to classify, right, you deploy it too far from, for example, payments that you want to determine whether it's fraudulent or not, you can't get the millisecond response time you need for a swipe of a card or when someone hits submit my payment to be able to determine whether that payment is fraudulent. As a result, 80% of all payments never get checked to see whether they're fraudulent. However, what our team is working on at research with the hybrid cloud business unit is pervasive AI. We have built AI accelerators that could do 300 billion inferences a day, 50,000 inference a second, the fastest of any industry. And we're deploying them at customers where now 100% of their payments could be checked for fraud. Before, they would deploy AI models in a public cloud and their payments would be in their own private cloud to keep them secure and to provide the scalability and elasticity they required. And when a payment came in and calling a public cloud, it was taking too long. The latency was the seconds. So they were losing $100 million a year and not being able to catch this fraud. But now with pervasive AI, AI accelerator available, also the open source AI frameworks using it, we could now do a better job for fraud detection, detecting when your identity has been stolen, optimization of trades, even uh, medical imaging. So that I'm really excited about enabling AI to be truly um, deployed in production in a cloud. That sounds really cool. Actually makes me curious to learn more about how that actually works. Maybe we'll just get you back on another podcast and, and dive a little deeper into those kinds of things. It sounds really interesting. So with that, we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for coming, Donna. That was a very interesting and enlightening conversation. Thanks, Andre. All right. We'll wrap up today's episode. I want to thank everyone for listening and hope to see you all soon. Bye-bye.